Hi, my name is Wendy Weber. And my name is Sydney Bowie. Welcome to Nobody Chooses Homelessness. A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be part of the solution. In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again. We work for City Relief, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness. City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and health care. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging. We both have years of experience working systemically and on the ground to end homelessness. We believe that in order to end homelessness, it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life helping their neighbors in need. Today, we are excited to shine a spotlight on a true trailblazer in the field of research and advocacy. Deborah Padgett is a professor at NYU Silver, and her work has made a significant impact on the way we approach important issues such as homelessness and mental health. As an internationally renowned mentor and advocate for qualitative and mixed methods and research, Dr. Paget has made significant contributions to the field. One of her most notable accomplishments is the book she co-authored, Housing First, Ending Homelessness, Changing Systems, and Transforming Lives. This book is a game changer, documenting a paradigm shift in the approach to addressing homelessness in the U.S. and abroad. Dr. Paget has also received recognition for her work on several National Institute of Mental Health funded grants and her mixed methods of study of African-American women and breast cancer screening. Her accomplishments are far reaching and have made a difference across the globe with her research on homeless pavement dwellers in Delhi, India, extending her interest in homelessness to cross-cultural contexts. Dr. Paget has received numerous accolades for her contributions to the field, including the NYU Distinguished Teaching Award, and being named a fellow of the American Academy of Social Work and Social Welfare. We are grateful for the work of individuals like Dr. Deborah Paget, whose dedication and hard work have helped to change lives and make the world a better place. Let's dive into this conversation. Well, hello, Dr. Paget. Welcome. We're so glad to have you here today. Thank you. It's good to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and what's led you to focus your work on the area of homelessness? I, I came to New York City to pursue a postdoctoral fellowship uh, up at Columbia, the New York State Psychiatric Institute. And in the mid-'80s, uh, homelessness was being very, very visible here in New York City, whereas I came from Florida where you didn't see that problem. So I did my postdoc, but along the way I uh, became a colleague with some researchers who were studying homelessness in the very early days of the so-called epidemic. And uh, I joined forces with them to do research. Um, and then I came to New York University as a professor and did research in other areas, but I came back into homelessness in a big way when the founder of Housing First, or Pathways to Housing, Sam Simbaris, asked me to be on the board of directors for that organization. Uh, and I'll tell you more, but this was the first location for Housing First, which is now known virtually around the world. And I was happy to be on the board of directors and really gratified to see this organization that was doing things that I almost thought were impossible to do. Uh, and so over time, I left the board and became a much more of a researcher into this area and I do qualitative methods, so my approach to the research, which is uh, a good part of 
the period between 2004 2015 uh, was to speak with Pathways to Housing clients and then compare their experiences with uh, individuals who were in other homeless organizations that did not provide housing first, but instead had transitional housing, uh, used shelters and so forth. So we had a comparison group in the research and that put me even closer to housing first is really the direction I wanted to go in. And we wrote a book together they came out in 2016 about Housing First, and it, ever since then, it has spread, and its um, effectiveness has been demonstrated by a lot of research studies. So it's been a it's a great run for me to be that close to something this kind of phenomenal. Really, has caused a lot of changes. So, can you um, talk to us about what Housing First is? Well, sometimes it's helpful to start by saying what it is not, because what it is not is what we do in the city here in New York, uh, which is individuals are outreached or they come and they're, they're put in shelters. And we have, you know, give or take 60 odd thousand people in shelters and 3,000 or so still on the street. But New York has a right to shelter. So anyone, you know, can ostensibly get a bed. What Pathways to Housing does is it doesn't force you to go through that long staircase of going through a shelter and then going through transitional. And this can take years or never to get to the destination you want, which is to have your own permanent housing. So Housing First just reversed that and gave immediate access. This was starting in 1992 um, to individuals. Now, at this stage, it was individuals with a serious mental illness who were eligible. And so Pathways just began housing people. But they, I want to mention it's not housing only. It, it is, they have support services. So they had what are called assertive community treatment teams that were available to them. So once they were housed, they had to consent to meet with these teams um, two or three times a month. But not only was that different, the fact that they were immediately housed, whereas the city would make you go through these months or years long uh, processes to get to that point. But Pathways also had a kind of a radical philosophy of consumer choice uh, around taking medications or not, around using substances or not. Uh, they practiced harm reduction, in other words. And so the whole philosophy of Pathways was much more consumer-centered and giving choice and uh, really trying to respect them as human beings, give them a place to live, and use that as a starting point for recovery rather than expect them to recover while they're in a shelter or on the streets and then somehow eventually end up in housing, which rarely happens, but it can. So, Dr. Padgett, you clearly obviously have, have a wealth of knowledge um, and experience on... Uh on home on homelessness and, and working in this field, even speaking about coming in um, in, in the mid eighties, what has you have you seen has is different now? Like if we think about what modern homelessness, the the modern homelessness epidemic is, especially if I think about someone who's thinking like you know, depending on what situation you've grown up or what kind of uh, your your cultural background is, there's a, a a set kind of thought sometimes that people have about this is what homelessness is. This is what someone who's struggling with homelessness is like. What is the state 
right now with the the modern homelessness crisis and and, and where do you how, how have we gotten to this place here in 2023 oh that's a good question of <laughs> a loaded question of sorts well let me say again that new york city has a right to shelter and it's really the only city in the country that has this unquestioned right to shelter and that's part of the reason why we have what i call a homeless shelter industry here in new york that's not true in california and other places although it could become that. But the majority of homeless or unhoused people in this city are in shelters. That is not a good thing. These shelters are dangerous. They're crowded. And so that's why you have thousands of people still prefer the streets. And we've, <clears throat> we've studied individuals on the streets, talked to them, and have heard that they, as unpleasant as it is living on the street, that's pretty much an indictment of our system of shelters that people would prefer that to shelter. So the state of homelessness, it's a broad area to go into, but, but I will say that New York City is kind of exceptional in a lot of ways in the amount of money we spend, almost $3 billion a year just on homelessness. Uh, nowhere comes near, no place in the United States having that kind of budget just for homeless services. There is a subgroup of individuals who have serious mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And by virtue of having a disability, they are eligible for what's called permanent supportive housing, which means if it's pathways version or housing first, they have their own apartment or studio. Uh, other organizations may have permanent supportive housing, but they tend to put people with roommates in supervised residences uh, whereas Pathways clients are in scatter sites, so they're in apartments just like anyone would be. They have to sign a lease. They have to be a, a you know follow the requirements of the lease. Uh, so they're not crowded into one kind of supervised uh, setting where they live. What's happening today is we're seeing a real dramatic increase. I'm not quite sure why. And of course, now New York City is coping with the, the immigrants, the asylum seekers as well. Uh, California is the other kind of epicenter where there are comparably large numbers of people. But California went a very different route of, of using faith-based organizations and skid row, basically, sort of corralling homeless people into this 50 square blocks of uh, homelessness and shelters and uh tents and so forth, they are now coming to face an emergency, as they've said. There simply isn't enough affordable housing anywhere, but particularly in California, where you have very strict zoning laws favoring single-family dwellings, many, many obstacles, kind of bureau bureaucratic obstacles, stand in the way of actually, if there, if there was the political will, which there isn't always, to build affordable housing so that people living on the street would have some place to go. I agree we are in a crisis, and I think none of us thought in the 80s that here we would be over 30 years into this, and it's actually worse, if you can imagine, than it was in 1985 or 86, when you would see people pushing sharp shopping carts around, you know, that kind of thing. We are at a stage, uh, I guess it's no accident that it's on politicians' minds today as well, you know, because people are complaining and are concerned, you know, some of them out of good motives, some not so good motives. So we see a lot of 
negative characterizations of homeless people in newspapers, uh, television reports, uh, saying it's their own fault they're homeless. You know, they made bad choices through drinking, drug use. They have a mental illness. But in fact, all of those problems really are a relative minority of people who are homeless. Most homeless people are families, living in families. And these are individuals who just are poor and could not afford housing. And it's the cost of housing is only getting higher. At City Relief, we aren't the only ones in the business of helping people. This podcast is brought to you by our longtime supporters and friends at Buttafuoco and Associates. They are dedicated to helping people rebuild their lives after a serious injury. They are a national injury law firm that has won over 500 million in verdicts and settlements for people struggling to overcome medical malpractice, construction accidents, auto accidents, injuries, wrongful death, and workers' compensation. Their team of personal injury attorneys has a genuine passion for seeking justice, and they understand the hardships that come with debilitating injuries that change the course of someone's life. If you or a loved one has experienced a serious injury, our friends at Buttafuoco and Associates will take care of you. Contact them at 1-800-NOWHURT.COM or 1-800-669-4878. I heard you say, you mentioned the homeless industry. Can you unpack who the players are in the homeless industry? And Well, I've come to see in my travels that New York City has the most sophisticated homeless industry. And by that, I mean a series of, it's kind of institutionalized that there are literally hundreds of nonprofits who get contracts from the city and some get funds from HUD if they're part of a continuum of care. But New York, as I said, if you have 60 plus thousand people living in shelters, you are supporting thousands of support workers, people who prepare food, security guards, van drivers, as you can imagine, Every nonprofit has a multi-million dollar budget. So it's, it's not as if they, they do have good intentions and it's not as if they want homelessness to continue. But there's a certain status quo here that would be very threatened if you could wave a magic wand and end homelessness of many of these nonprofits uh, dependent on these million dollar, multi-million dollar contracts to do outreach, to provide transitional housing, um, most of the work they do is not housing first. Some say they're doing housing first, but it, it isn't quite the same thing where you take people immediately in and give them housing. It's usually more of a staircase approach to getting that. As you might imagine, I consider that an obstacle. I don't think it's any, it's thought through. It's not a conspiracy. It's just the status quo we have. Mm-hmm. that's grown up over 30 years and the fact that we have we spend quite a bit of money in this city and state on homelessness on providing shelters for people or permanent supportive housing for people with a disability but the status quo it's not good for people without a home but uh, on the other hand and, and developers I'll just give other examples of developers and most housing in this country is now built in the private sector. The federal government of this country basically stopped building housing in the 1980s. You know, we had this huge stock of public housing. But in the Reagan era, uh, it was 
outsourced basically to private developers. Well, as you can imagine, private developers don't have much of an incentive to build for poor people and to build affordable housing. So the trade-off was the government would give tax breaks to developers who would devote 10% or so of the units in a building, let's say, for people of low income. But the, the, the incentive system is almost entirely on the side of not having sufficient affordable housing and perpetuating uh, these nonprofits who, as I say, have good intentions, but are basically holding up this uh, extremely costly system. And we know from research that housing first actually costs less than the staircase or no services, obviously, at all, because people on the street or even in transitional housing use more emergency rooms, they have more hospital visits, and it's, it's actually costly to have homeless people, more so than to have housing first. So on that topic, right, um, and you're saying there are so many nonprofits that aren't, uh, do not work with the housing first model, right, kind of um, making sure that's the just the step, like everyone is kind of not just right to shelter, but right to housing, right to mm -hmm. actually having your own place. There is some criticism about the the housing first model, right? And some people feeling like there are certain certain steps that should happen before someone mm -hmm. gets to a home. What would you say to those critics, and what would you say they might not understand about homelessness? Well, what I would say is, I think the steps you're referring to is the idea that a person shouldn't be given access to an apartment or a housing voucher or whatever until they become clean and sober, you know, sort of present themselves as selves as housing worthy. And by that, I mean, they're willing to take their psychiatric medications with no question. Uh, they are completely com clean of drug and alcohol use. Uh, and just in general, have a sense of being individuals that are, are, their needs are fairly low. That's a difficult barrier to overcome. And, you know, in Housing First, we argue that you can help people even more if they're already housed. I think what we have in this country is a lot of misperceptions of who the homeless are and how they got into that situation. And by and large, those perceptions, and there is a fairly strong conservative movement now funded by billionaires or so of, of having institutes put out papers criticizing housing first. And what they're doing basically is perpetuating the notion that people are homeless because they have bad choices. They drink too much. They don't take care of their mental illness. Uh, they don't know how to, you know, behave, uh, get a job or behave like a housing worthy person. And a lot of pop, a lot of the popular perceptions go in line with that. But those are just myths about housing and homelessness. Truly, homelessness is due to a lack of housing. And there have been books and articles that have shown any argument you want to say uh, about housing first is you come back to the fact that it is the only approach to homelessness that has a huge research base showing that it works. That is, people stay out of homelessness uh, for years at a time in housing first. Uh, and that's true in Canada and much, much of Western Europe as well. And by comparison, people who are in that system of 
shelters, transitional housing, uh, safe havens, the, all of these temporary things are not making much headway in their lives. They're often in dangerous situations in these shelters. And certainly you can't expect their mental health to get better under these circumstances. So to me, it's, it's kind of a natural, not to mention humane thing, to give people housing. I am very mindful that the one, one criticism of Housing First is there just isn't enough affordable housing. We could tomorrow just say, from now on, we're going to rent every apartment we can and place people in it. So there's some structural changes that have to take place uh, over time uh, to make that even, even remotely possible. And I think California is trying to do some of those to get variances in zoning ordinances and to reduce the time for building permits and so forth. To me, New York City has, an, has such an aging housing stock and a limited space for building, not and unlike California, that it, it does take a real change of attitude, a basic political will, but a lot of changes in the way people view homeless and, and the... the um, the way to resolve it. So it's very hard with the new mayor, Adams, when he says he wants to do the humane thing and, and, you know, but he ultimately goes back to the old ways using the police sweeps in the subways. That's not helping people get over homelessness. It's just making the subways seemingly better. I love the phrase you use of, of someone being, like housing worthy. I think mm -hmm. often people wouldn't necessarily think of it like that, even if you're thinking about, oh, well, these are all the things that someone should have to do to, uh, and like, are you saying that someone isn't worthy of housing? And I think mm -hmm. presenting it that way really makes someone kind of step back and think about, oh man, what, what okay. is it that I'm actually, actually saying? So, and really that, is, that is in direct uh, contradiction by housing as a right. And housing first is, is most definitely uh, starts from that, root belief that housing everyone should have housing and that that is where our effort should go you know you can if when you consider that a uh, a shelter bed costs about three thousand dollars a month that could go to a pretty decent rent for someone you know i that's for me the logic i know there are many things that have to happen to change that situation but when i think of how much money we're already spending to no good end Sadly, it's kind of sobering to have those thoughts. City Relief is a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive. We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten. We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you, who want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give or volunteer and make a real impact on homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode. Yeah, absolutely. And to go back what you were just saying about Mayor Adams, um, the city has received a lot of press about uh, the policy to involuntarily hospitalize people experiencing homelessness yes. who exhibit mental disorders. Um, and I know that that is part of your research and specialty, the intersection of homelessness and people who um, have mm -hmm. mental health um, disorders. 
How do you, what are your thoughts on that policy? Uh, is there a better way um, to serve people who are in that kind of crisis? Well, I, when I hear about that policy, I want to say been there, done that. We already have a law in the books, Kendra's Law. And Mr. Goldstein, the, the man with mental illness who pushed Kendra onto the subway tracks, which caused that law to be passed, he was desperately looking for help at the time to deal with his schizophrenia. He couldn't find a clinic that could give him a an appointment within six months. So the idea that people are going untreated is more of a system problem than it is their resistance to treatment. There is research on this phenomenon of uh, ma mandated or involuntary commitment. It tends to show that it doesn't work. People leave or they don't get the the system itself can't sustain keeping in touch with these individuals and enforcing the legal requirement that they take their medications. It doesn't work very well. It, AOT, assisted outpatient treatment, is sometimes called. California, to my disappointment, started with their care courts. It's the same idea that people would be mandated to go into treatment. And psychiatrists and the people in the public hospitals are saying, we simply don't have the beds. They closed uh, many psychiatric beds in hospitals. Of course, the big closure was deinstitutionalization de in the 60s and 70s. But even in the past year or so, especially with the pandemic, the availability, even of beds for these people to go into, is, is, is very scant. Uh, so I understand that it, it answers that thing of what can we do? And we have people with mental illness suffering in our midst. But once again, I come back to my, my, my favorite phrase, which is, Having a home helps you get better in almost every way. And not having a home is detrimental to your health and mental health. So they'll go into a psych hold. They may be held for 72 hours, uh, maybe longer. But once they come out, they're homeless again. So it's a little bit of a revolving door solution at best. Yeah, if you could just speak to that a little more, you made that point about housing first, there being just this actual evidence of it being more effective mm -hmm. and, and helping people uh, come to a place of sustainability. Just kind of expounding on that, like what are those direct impacts of housing first um, and how does that kind of shift the paradigm in, in the housing industry? You know, I, I have been fortunate enough to see it in practice because there is no longer a Pathways in New York, but I've traveled to Europe, to Italy, many countries where they're doing it. And I meet these clients or tenants who had been homeless sometimes for decades. And I see them before and after, and it's really stunning the difference it makes. And I've seen people who seem to be hopelessly psychotic when given a home. Sometimes they live in a tent. I know in one case we had to put the tent in the living room of their apartment because they were still more comfortable being in That's what you do. What is the problem with that, right? You know, and gradually the trust comes through. And when the trust comes through, then you can have an honest communication about medications and what works for you and what you're willing to take. And most people are willing to take if they have trust or they believe that their best interests are being considered. 
The research I'm referring to are, are the most rigorous types of research, which is randomized clinical trials, where people randomly assigned to get housing first, or usual care, which is, you know, sort of agglomeration of going between shelters to the street, to jails, and so forth. Uh, Canada did a whole national study, five cities, a $100 million uh, study of Housing First, and they came out with the same statistics. Around 80 to 90% of people stay housed after one year. Uh, it doesn't mean their problems are over. And, uh, and Housing First isn't the cure to everything. You know, some people have a lot of trauma in their lives, and it's going to take a while, but they at least are indoors. And I, I don't see how you can argue that that's bad for their mental health. Uh, but France has done a randomized clinical trial. Most countries in Europe have done pilots of them where they try, and then they see the positive results. There is housing first. It is mandated by HUD right now that continuums of care who seek HUD funding have to document that they're putting housing first forward as their primary model to the extent they don't their funding is reduced so having that endorsement has been tremendously helpful but it has also uh built some opposition to it um and so we have some organizations some faith-based some more conservative places who have objected to housing first being a, being given a priority by the federal government. Uh, when Trump was in office, of course, he tried to reverse all of those policies. But but we're back on 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 track with housing first being the priority. If you want to get the the newest success stories are Houston and Milwaukee. Houston even faster than Milwaukee adopted housing first. Everybody got on board, and by that I mean. Everything from the criminal justice system to the nonprofits to the charitable organizations and said, we're going to do this. We're going to help focus on each person who's homeless get into an apartment. And they have reduced homelessness by, I think in Milwaukee, by 60%. It's, it's quite impressive. And so when people say, oh, maybe it works in some places and not others, no, it seems to work pretty well wherever it's uh, wherever the focus and the political will are to do it. Yeah. It's hard to ignore um, cases where it's, it's being put into place and it's working. I, I, I guess it can be ignored or argued with, but we have that evidence right in front of us. Right. Um, one question we like to ask all of our guests, um, as you know, the name of this podcast is nobody chooses homelessness. And when I think about asking you, how does that resonate with you? I think Dr. Padgett is one of the, probably the originators of such an idea that nobody chooses homelessness. And I, I just have to, this quote that I, that, um, what you were quoted saying, homeless people are not service resistant. They are rational actors all too familiar with unkept promises, which I thought was such a profound, profound statement. So when you hear nobody chooses homelessness, can you just expand on that idea? Well, let me just say I love it. <laughs> I, I I think that pretty well uh, aligns very well with what I'm saying. It, uh, you know, there are actually people in this country who think 
that people love the freedom of the street, you know, and they romanticize and say, oh, they just want to take drugs, be out there, have no responsibility. I have never met a homeless person or, you know, in my work who didn't want to come inside. Do they want to come into a dangerous shelter? Maybe not. But if given an offer that's reasonably um, suited to them, that is, they have their own place, it's not going to be a fancy apartment and, uh, you know, an expensive part of town. But when they have their own place, um, they're more than happy to come in doors uh, and, and trust. And you need, I, I do want to keep saying it's not housing only, because some places have done that. It didn't work. And they said, see, housing first doesn't work. Well, the places that say they've tried it doesn't work, there's usually an element of um, not actually putting the model in place with the right support services. And so that's a big thing. I just want to say, if there's one thing I can say is I've actually seen it. You know, it's one thing to read these randomized, you know, these statistics and, and all of these reports. But being a part of Housing First and seeing for close to 10 years and seeing the difference in people's lives, you almost, you almost can't believe it. I mean, it's like they almost look like different people when you see them after a few weeks they've been in their apartment. So seeing the change and... Of course, there's some people that take longer to get get their drug use under control. Their their psychosis or their mental condition is more fragile. But by and large, uh, and we certainly found this, by the way, in the COVID-19 pandemic when we studied people going into hotel rooms. Now, that's where you saw a stark difference because these are straight from the street, people living in the subways and going into a hotel room and the sheer delight they took that we all take for granted. We have a key to put in a door that we have a telephone, that we have a place to take a shower. Uh, no one's going to be waking us up for bed checks three or four times a night. That's what a lot of these organizations do. And so it's very moving to see what a difference it makes in people's mental state and their, their ability to think about a future life more than just day-to-day -day survival. You, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, that housing first is not housing only, right? right? That there are other services that are necessary. So could you speak to that? Just some mm -hmm. of the wraparound services, you know, someone going through, even the, you know, the example you're giving of someone, for, for their state of mind feeling like, okay, I have, I have a place and a home, but I, I, I need to sleep in my tent in the yeah. home, right? Just because of whatever level of safety that provided them, right? So after being out on the street and dealing with all the trauma that can that can come in with different people's experiences, what are some of those wraparound services that need to happen after someone gets, you know, gets a home, but still kind of walking alongside them? Well, I have to give Sam Simbaris credit for this. He founded Pathways to Housing. And I've known him for 30 30 odd years. And we've had many conversations about this. He's a psychologist. Of course, you need psychiatrists as part of the team because they need to be in on discussions of medications, social workers, case managers, people who can often, they're not really treating them clinically as much as they're going into their apartments. They don't make the client come to them. They go out 
and they sit with the person. And they look around the apartment, of course. If they see a lot of empty wine bottles, they might say, how are you doing? You know, not saying, oh, you're going to lose your apartment, but say, maybe we need to talk about this. So their case managers uh, at Pathways, they had a nurse practitioner on the team because many of these people have diabetes. They have health problems, cardiac problems, kidney disease. Living on the streets is very horrible to the body. And so a nurse is there to take care of blood pressure and part of the team. And I will say back at the, at the Pathways offices, they offered photography classes, uh, resume writing exercises, uh, GED classes, nutrition classes, so I wouldn't say you have to have those things, but they were, all of those were sort of part of the package of trying to help people kind of get their life back. But the formal team was called Assertive Community Treatment, and it's a model developed specifically to allow people with serious mental illness to live in, the, in their own places, in the community, and with help. But, you know, I kind of laugh at times when I think about what some of these teams were doing the landlords had the right to call Pathways. <clears throat> That's one reason why they kind of liked Pathways. A Pathways team leader might go unplug, unclog a toilet or may go and help, you know, repair some damage that the person got too drunk and maybe, you know, put his hand through a door. Or something. These are all things the team could help fix and help the landlord with. Um, and so team teams were pretty flexible. And so they weren't just focusing on this person as a patient or a mental illness, but the whole person. Yeah, that's so important. And there's these preconceived notions that people experiencing homelessness are all addicts or all have mental illness or kind of all in this one state. And there are people who are experiencing those things. But you have to remember the homelessness itself is traumatic. And how many yes. people are experiencing are um, experiencing drug and alcohol addiction because they're homeless and they're dealing with the trauma every single day, right? Yeah. Uh, daily trauma. And uh, you were talking about Houston and uh, the success story there. Um, do you think that that, um, the Houston model, I think you said 60%, do you think that's possible here in New York City? That's where I get a little scared. <laughs> I mean, we have built up such a system of services that how are you going to unpack all of that? You know, it's, uh, it's a little scary. Although I'm still optimistic that it could be done, but I have to say New York with the, the way developers, the way land, precious land is being used and housing built, it's all private developers. We're going to have to fundamentally change the way we view housing as part of a public charge rather than a few units that a private developer will allow. So it would take a big change in like attitude by the real estate board, by the real estate industry, as well as the whole industry, um, you know, that, that spends millions on uh, addressing homelessness through various transitional models. I have, I have to be optimistic that it's possible but it, it, New York is, is, is going to be difficult. And so is California. The numbers, we've waited too long in many ways to, we've let this system become so institutionalized, such a status quo, 
And California just didn't do anything for so long that it's going to take a lot of work. I, the good news is since Biden got into office is there, there's been, you know, much more assistance, uh, many more housing vouchers for homeless families. That's basically what they need is a rental voucher. These aren't homeless families are not the ones that you hear as much about. They're not the mentally ill or the drug addicted on the street. They're in these crowded city shelters. They usually have one room per family, but generally speaking, I think that there's, the attention generally goes to the people you see who are the most troubled. And in fact, housing rental vouchers would be the answer for most homeless people. You have to give them a voucher, then you have to find a landlord and make sure that they will take that voucher. Right, and find landlords who are, are willing to, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. and they're legal. It's breaking the law if they, you know, don't, but they find ways. <laughs> they yes. find ways. Of course. Yeah, I'm thinking of a, a gentleman I was talking to who was he was showing me the the um, the conversation he was having between himself and the the landlord where there was a posting for a opportunity, sent him all this information, he had it back and forth, and as soon as there was something about, oh yeah, I'm using a city fest voucher, it was the next response he got was, oh, we actually have uh, more qualified candidates. Some way to form it and say it so that it's not saying that, oh, you have a voucher, you ever not taking that. But as we think about uh, like that, you were saying like there needs to be a change um, and even like the mindset of developers, mindset of just people within the homeless industry, right? I just think about the person who is, you might be listening to this podcast, who's just the everyday person who's thinking, okay, what is it that I can do if there is one thing that that person could do to help, you know, lead to make an impact in ending homelessness. You know, as I'm thinking about, again, that cha- that greater change in mindset from the status quo, um, what are some of the things that even just that individual, maybe there needs to be a change in mindset of what they see as the status quo that could help make an impact? We could use an attitude change where people understand more wh- what's causing homelessness and would be willing to support political candidates and members of city commissions and people in political positions who would be more likely and and more in tune with the housing first philosophy and therefore would put pressure on developers or in other ways uh, try to institute. It's really hard for one per, you know, for any one of us, but I think change of attitude, understanding and really voting in people who will change the course of history, so to speak, and put more pressure and put more funding, federal, state, and local, into housing. I could really see a situation where homelessness becomes such an expense, such expense, such a disaster for the individuals that we come, we come to a position where we have it. I mean, Karen Bass is the mayor of L.A. has declared an emergency. You almost have to suspend some laws and some ordinances and things just to make sure that we can at least stabilize the situation. But certainly it's not helped if people go around blaming those individuals for their fate. There's a lot of violence done against homeless people. You may have seen the man in uh, California used his garden hose and started hosing down a homeless woman who was on the sidewalk in front of his business. That level of cruelty happens all the time. 
but I certainly think we could change that and and counter some of these misconceptions of who homeless people are. They are us. They are part. They're New Yorkers, and they they didn't come. The studies have been done. People don't come from somewhere else to New York to be homeless, or they don't go to California. Most people are homeless, grew up within a few miles of where they are camping. So these are our fellow New Yorkers, you know, who are in these shelters. And, um, you know, we have a, a ways to go to acknowledge that and to treat them as, as individuals worthy, housing worthy, so to speak. Yeah, and uh, I love that they are us. They're New Yorkers, they're us. They're human beings. Um, it's honestly been such an honor to talk to you, Dr. Pat, oh, your years and you. years of work and expertise in this area. So thank you so <laughs> thank much you. for taking the time. It's really You're very been kind. great. Thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Hey, you. Yes, you, listener. Have you ever been walking down the street and someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money? Do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help? What do you do? Well, don't worry, we are here to help. Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick, easy to use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.